and welcome to another Driving You Crazy podcast here just a few days after a second major hurricane hits the country. I'm Denver 7 traffic anchor Jason Luber. I'm pedestrian advocate Joseph Peters. There was a hurricane on my walk to work today as well. There was. A man was reading a book and walking in front of me on the sidewalk. I wanted to take hit the back of his head and slam it into the book and tell him to look up and pay attention. So how was that a hurricane? Is a hurricane of rage. Oh, a hurricane of rage. Is this Hurricane Joseph? Yes, it is. The ne- hurricane Jose, actually. I was honored that they decided to name it after me. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> a crazy path on that one. If you haven't checked the Weather Channel, it's projected to do almost a dosy do in the Atlantic Ocean before making landfall in the Caribbean. I know. How weird is that? You very rarely see it, I think. But Harvey had a very similar path. It's just when Harvey took that path, it was over Texas and Louisiana and caused a lot of destruction. Thankfully, Jose will be taking that path over water. When I took my uh, my, my schooling, my classes from my Penn State forecasting uh, classes about hurricanes, there's usually in the this time of year a large high-pressure system that's right over the Atlantic Ocean between us and, and Europe. And basically, that helps steer all these systems coming off of Africa, and uh, then it helps steer them towards the Caribbean and towards Florida. But this time, the it, the it moved a little bit, so the high pressure moved, and that's why it's just sitting out there spinning around, not knowing exactly where to go. It's crazy, though. I mean, it, you know, the, we can save the global warming debate for another day, but I think there's no dispute that the warmer water in the oceans is definitely having an impact on the severity of these storms and their track to a lesser extent. And it's such a sad story. Just seeing the destruction. I mean, the the keys are just trashed. I have uh, family up in Jacksonville, and they were not. Uh, they have this big retention pond in the back, and the water came up higher than it normally does, but it did not flood their house. Um, my parents from Palm Coast they evacuated to some place, and then I think they're back in their house. I, I, I don't. I'm not sure. Um, they gave a call, a quick call, just to say they were they were alive. Um, but just like Houston, it's going to go through a huge rebuilding process. It's going to last months and years. And before the hurricane hit, when Irma was still in the Caribbean, I was watching that the, the epic evacuation of people from South Florida getting away from the hurricane and it, with the freeways that were packed full of tourists and residents all trying to get out of the way before the storm. And as I was watching this process, I had many thoughts popping into my head. But one of the most interesting thoughts I had was how do you evacuate 10 million people when they don't own cars? What got me thinking about this, because we talk all the time here on the show about predictions over the next 10, what, 15 years of how driverless cars are going to be all over the place and how fewer people are going to own their own cars and everybody's going to be using public transportation or sharing uh, rides with Uber or Lyft or doing the driverless car thing where you might share those as well. Right. So I'm thinking that, that was so with fewer people owning their own vehicles. And the ones that are privately owned are either used for occasional trips, or, or like as an Uber or a Lyft, something like that. Many people in a small area are using these these cars, and they don't have them for themselves. Uh, how do these people get out of a evacuate an area like Florida where they have to get out uh, when you don't have your car and you need one? That's got to be one of the most helpless feelings ever. I would think. Absolutely. When it's all rainbows and sunbeams outside, then, then hey, self-driving cars and public transportation is, is wonderful. But life doesn't work out that way. We saw that here with a couple of huge storms. Uh, the Earth is a place that has changing weather conditions all the time. It's not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood out there. 
I can't I can't wait for this this conversation in, in let's say ten years with my news director when she calls me ask calls me up and asks me why I'm I'm not at work during the snowstorm and I'm sure she'll be sympathetic to my plight when I explain that the self driving car that I ordered couldn't make it up my street through the snow and I had to stay home because I wouldn't own my own car at that point in ten years right right so sorry maybe next time but that that excuse at least in the news business doesn't work. The, the failure in, in the prediction of no more car ownership in the distant future is that these forecasts don't include weather forecasts. It's true. And it, what, what was remarkable to me is how many people were expected to continue coming to work and continue showing up during the hurricane. I mean, we're talking about pizza huts that are open. Right. Disney World still had their housekeepers on staff. Even as some of those housekeepers were having their homes flooded out and they didn't have a place to sleep, they were making other people's beds. Right. It, it, it was really an interesting – all of this is very interesting to watch the entire process happen, whether it's in Houston or all the way down there in Florida. Uh, I mean, really, there aren't enough planes and trains and buses and cars and boats to transport millions of peoples in a very short amount of time from one place to another. There's just not. So let's say there's another gigantic storm that's coming along that same path in, let's say, 15 years. How do these people get out of the way if they didn't own their own car? I guess the population of South Florida would be, uh, what, 30% probably higher by then, don't you think? A lot of people like to live there. Maybe this will drop down some of the population like it did after Katrina in New Orleans, and and then it has to be rebuilt after a while. But I don't think there's any plans by the government or anyone else to, to solve that problem if it actually comes to fruition And that's why I always am skeptical when these predictions come along that say in 10 or 15 years, we everybody's going to be using self-driving cars. Everybody's going to be using Uber. Everybody's going to uh, uh, be driving around in this utopian paradise and not have to own their own car. I don't think it's going to happen in 10, 15, maybe 50 or 75 years. But even then, we still are going to have these hurricanes and these weather problems and and, and needing to evacuate people out of those ways. Well, it's true. And the bottom line is that with this particular hurricane, there were plenty of people who don't have a car through entirely different circumstances. And they had nowhere to go either. And so they wound up sheltering in place or going to a shelter or something of that nature. And so I think that people choose to live in South Florida. They're not all going to move to Iowa for any reason. No. and Nor should they. It's their right to live in Florida. It's their right to buy $500,000 property in the Florida Keys if they see fit. But you have to understand that a hurricane could come. And as far as the mass evacuations, I think part of the problem is that you need to do it in such a short period of time. I mean, people just don't trust the weather forecast. And so if you say five days out, hey, this storm is coming, people will not choose to evacuate five days out. They'll wait until 24 hours beforehand. And that's why you see so much congestion on the roads. And yes, that is going to create a serious problem if we shift towards an economy that relies mostly on self-driving cars because there just won't be enough self-driving cars to get people out of there at that point in time. And then in this scenario where you have the mass evacuation because in the first uh, couple of forecasts that the hurricane was, was scheduled to go across the east coast of Florida and then now it was central Florida and then it obviously hit the west coast of Florida. So you move all these people from Miami and Fort Lauderdale and uh, let's say even uh, Daytona or Jacksonville to the west side because they think it's going to hit on the east side. But then it hits on the west side and you have all those people that you have to get back to the east side. And then all the people that are there on the west side move them out too. And the most fascinating part to me is that people in Miami were evacuating to Orlando or at least seriously discussing evacuating to Orlando because it seemed like that was going to be one of the safer cities in the state of Florida. And Orlando wound up taking one of the hardest hits because the storm turned inland at the last minute. It's it's kind of crazy. Really, it's a perfect example of the unintended consequence 
from one set of circumstance where you have a, an economy based on on one idea and you're not looking forward into the future and how to how to deal with this. And, and speaking of all these consequences, have you have you really noticed that ever since the eclipse, the world is falling apart? Have you noticed that the, the Earth is is going kooky duke right now? We 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 have flooding, we have monster hurricanes, massive earthquakes. The the one down in Mexico, we have tsunamis, we have raging wildfires, we have uh, North Korea setting off nukes, we have Trump making deals with Schumer. I mean, come on. It, the, the world's going crazy right now. And the other day, some random guy sent me a Facebook message that said, have you ever heard of HARP? It, it was H-A-A-R-P. I, I had no idea what he was talking about. I looked it up. And when I did, little scary, little crazy, all at the same time. It was talking about cloud seeding. It was talking about government conspiracies and like government triggering earthquakes and other disasters, like creating these hurricanes and that sort of thing. Look, the government could barely stay out of its own way. And these people think the government has the functionality to create natural disasters? Seriously? I mean, the Earth is a pretty big place. If you get to look at any of those big satellite images of these of the hurricanes and how they work and how these storm systems move around the world, the Earth is a big place. Mm-hmm. You know, it does what it wants. It's the Earth. Hello? We had so much smoke last week here in Colorado from the fires that were in Montana and Idaho and out to the west. I mean, it smelled like I had a campfire in the backyard, for Pete's sakes. All carried by winds from way out on what? That would take me a day and a half to drive just right here to the state. It's really unbelievable. And why would the government want to destroy things that it has to then rebuild? I don't quite understand that either, Joseph. I just don't. I don't. doesn't make any sense to me. All I'm saying is that cloud seeding is a fascinating theory, and I understand why people want to believe that it really happens. It doesn't. Hate to break it to you. Yeah. But is it really that implausible that the government could create some of these sort of natural disasters? Yes, it is implausible. It is implausible. Look, honestly, everybody criticized the government for not being able to do anything right, but yet they can create natural disasters like, uh, like we're in the future? Come on! Get what you can't have them hor- be horrible in one situation and have them be super brilliant in the other. It's that that is true. You right? Can't, you can't you can't have your cake and eat it too. They're either dumb or they're smart, but you got to pick one and stick with it. And I'm I'm going with the dumb. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. So uh, anyway, I hope for, I hope the best for all the poor people there in Florida and Texas and Barbuda and the Caribbean and all those islands down down there. And you know what also got me thinking too. Was was I see, was seeing a report about the uh, about the Virgin Islands and and how much damage is down there? One of, one of my wife's favorite shows is that uh, House Hunter Caribbean, where they're looking for great houses in in the U.S. Virgin Islands, all the way down through the Caribbean. Well, what about those people that have just purchased a whatever how many hundred thousand dollars and now it's gone? And what about those shows? Are those shows going to be pretty much defunct now? You're not going to have anybody buying property in the in St. Thomas. Well, the hopefully they had insurance, right? I mean, that's that's the big thing. Hopefully they had some sort well, of insurance. Sure. But you still aren't going to have that pres- that that great television show atmosphere because it's not paradise right now. Exactly. So what happens to those shows? It's a long way for being paradise from the looks of things in a lot of those. A areas. long, long way. And so anyway, we, it's going to be a long rebuilding. But we're going to talk more about this. You know what I saw though this week too. Remember we talked last week about the flooded cars yes. and how we're going to see those out here in the market and beware of that. That's exactly the same reports I saw yesterday on some of the national news. 
Um, They're following us, Joseph. They must have listened to the podcast, and now they are getting their news from us. A quick aside, I want to talk about the Blue Dodge Challenger on River Street in Savannah, Georgia. This thing went viral during the hur- during the storm okay. because River Street flooded out. Yes. There was a single Blue Ch- Dodge Challenger sitting in the live shot of a reporter for like seven hours straight. And everybody on social media wanted to know why that Blue Dodge Challenger was parked on River Street when people knew a hurricane was coming. It has since been towed. People Good. believe that the owner was trying to get a flood insurance claim, so he just left it down there. Oh, yeah. The owner, so far, has not been identified. When we find out the owner of the Blue Dodge Challenger, I'll be sure to let you know. Because there, there aren't a lot of parking. I, when I went to Georgia Southern, we used to go down to Savannah all the time and down there to River Street, and uh, it was it was a fun place to party. Yes. It was a bumpy road. It's, it's, it's a cobblestone. I mean, original cobblestone road, and it's really bumpy. And you go down there on purpose. That's not just a road... Because it's really not a, a it's not a through road that you're you're going somewhere else, right? I mean, you go there to go on purpose to right. go down. Either you're driving, you're cruising because you want to see all the sights, or you're parking down there because you want to party. You wanna, Either yeah. way, you do not park down there during a hurricane. No. So this is one of my favorite driving stories of the week. It comes out of Buffalo. The story says that a guy was driving a car that was eventually stopped in the town of Weathersfield with no windshield, doors, or a license plate. And that isn't the strangest part of this story. The car also had an axe sticking out of the roof. Yep, an axe right like there that. sticking out of the roof. It would have only been better if he had a flag on it. All of that ugliness led police to arrest the driver on charges of driving while impaired on drugs. You don't say! Driving on drugs? Maybe he was just trying to get to work. No! As a drug dealer. Yeah, as a drug dealer. (laughs) After receiving a report about a quote-unquote suspicious vehicle, deputies pulled over the car driven by 21-year-old Jared T. Price of Java, New York. How cool of a name of a city is that? Well, according to a sheriff's office news release, Price performed poorly on field sobriety testing and was taken into custody. He was impaired by, quote, Multiple different drug categories. (laughs) This guy liked to party, I guess. He was charged with driving with the ability impaired by drugs, driving while uh, while ability impaired by the combination uh, influence of drugs and numerous traffic infractions, including having an axe sticking out of the top of his car. I mean, the deal is, how does him being on drugs have anything to do with him not having any doors on his car? Like, one one does not cause the other. He made a no. conscious choice before he was on the drugs to take all the doors off of his vehicle. Or maybe it was like that, and then he was on the drugs, and he thought, whoa, that's a pretty cool-looking vehicle. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to cruise down the highway. It's like the, uh, it's like the, um, it's like the snail who, who took some red paint and his Cadillac, and, and, he, and he painted a big red S on the top of his Cadillac and on the doors. And and so when the snail was driving down the avenue, you see this this Cadillac with these big S's, and and so somebody asks, hey, why why'd you put those big S's all over your over your car? And he goes, because when I want when I'm driving down the avenue, I, I want people to say, hey, look at that S car go. Stop. Stop it. <laughs> Yay! I am Jason Luber. All right. There's <laughs> Did that make you want to get up and leave? No, I love dad jokes, man. So I just didn't see it coming. I, was, I, I let I let it go. I wanted to see where it went, and oh. it went where I thought it would. There you go. Well, there's an army of drivers who use the Waze app every day, right? I use it. I've, I've used it since it first came out. Well, the latest Waze update brings a nifty new feature. You can now request roadside help 
from fellow Waze users in case of an emergency, which I think was pretty interesting. There's a little extra button under the send a report area where you can report a crash or a car off to the side of the road or police or whatever. But you can also now request roadside help. So let's say you get a flat tire and you pull over or you run out of gas. Not sure how anybody runs out of gas. That's so stupid if you run out of gas. That's pushing it to the limit. Uh, only if you're in Florida running away from a hurricane where there is no gas, you're, you're yeah. allowed to run out of gas. Uh, you, you can click a button to request help from fellow Waze users. Of course, the ability to ask help doesn't necessarily guarantee that you will get help. And you should always proceed with caution when dealing with strangers. But it's nice to at least have that option there because you could have some crazy person pull up and then want to put an axe in the top of your car. Uh, I looked at it on my phone, and the logo for Roadside Help looks a lot like a lifesaver ring float, you know? Like something you would see on a ship. Mm-hmm. Those, those those things you throw in the water. Right. I wonder why you would summon help, though, from people on Waze and not call somebody else like AAA or to- another tow truck service or, you know, a family member or something. D- doesn't it seem odd that you would, unless maybe you're alone by yourself at... In, you know, in a city where you don't have any other family, I, I mean, guess. it really depends on if you want to roll the dice with AAA, right? I think a lot of people complain about the long response time with that particular company, but with yeah. other roadside help companies as well. And, you know, there's reason to believe that there are more people that use the Waze app than there are AAA responders. And maybe somebody would just be willing to give you a ride up to the gas station and then drop you off and you can go get some gas. or Right. Or maybe that's the place where you're at least somewhere and you can call from help at that point. I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting idea, I suppose. I support it. I don't know. Well, it can be pretty easy to zone out when you're behind the wheel. I, I've done it all the time. Actually, more of the time, it's because I'm exhausted and tired, and I feel like I'm going to fall asleep behind the wheel. These are things you should not be admitting on the podcast. Oh, right. All right. Well, with <laughs> <laughs> particularly, you can zone out when you're when you're rolling down a real straight or otherwise uninteresting stretch of road going between Atlanta and, well, really, between Macon and Savannah. When we would go down to Georgia, yes. so I-16. Absolutely. Oh, man, that is just straight, flat, trees on both sides where you can't see anything. It's one of the worst drives in America. It really it's is right horrible. up there with eastern Utah is one of the most boring drives in the, in the country. Now, while the dangers of, of drifting off and zoning out is obvious, a team of researchers has sought to understand just how commonplace it really is and by surveying and monitoring activity in the brain of road users, they believe they have some of the answers. So a team of researchers, including officials from the DOT and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they set up an experiment designed to quantify mind-wandering during driving. So this meant hooking up volunteers to an electrophysical uh, monitoring system to detect changes in electrical activity in their brain. But because they couldn't slap these on actual drivers as they're going down the road, they actually had to make do with a simulation model instead. So the simulation was made to mimic the monotony of day-to-day commuting. Five consecutive days, subjects were hooked up to these monitors, and then they jumped into the driving simulator, and they took two 20-minute drives along a pretty straight and intentionally dull stretch of highway at a pretty constant speed. So between those two trips, they were made to complete a written exam, replicate the mental exertion of a day's work. So at random time, the subjects would hear a buzzer and then be tempted by a a tablet computer asking whether their mind had been wandering. Well, if their answer was yes, they would ask whether they have been aware that their mind was wandering. They found that during simulated driving, people's minds wander a lot, some upward up to 70% of the time. Yikes. That's a lot. No kidding. (laughs) The team says that subjects were more likely to indulge in mind-wandering during the second trip 
and that they were only aware of their mind wandering 65% of the time. And by observing the electrical activity in the brain, they saw distinct changes in the electrophysiology of the brain and of the patterns when the mind wandering did occur. These researchers say that mind wandering may be an essential part of human existence and unavoidable. Well, that's great. It may be a way to restore the mind after a long day at the office. Well, I guess, yeah, because depending on the stresses you have, depending on your job, right? Right. What they're not so sure about yet is how dangerous it is during driving. I think it's pretty dangerous if you're not paying attention. They said they need additional research to figure that out. In terms of improving safety in the future, one option could be autonomous transport systems. The future! This survey brought to you by Tesla and other self-driving vehicle companies. (laughs) They say they can allow people's mind to wander as much as they want because the car will be driving themselves, right? And then re-engage the cars. If it was, let's say, a semi-autonomous car, they could re-engage when they need to pay attention. The team's research was published in the journal Frontiers in Human Neuroscience, I, I have a copy of that right now on my coffee table at home. Such a great way to fall asleep. All those big words, man. Lots of big words. Uh, my mind wanders all the time. I mean, this is some um, perfect mind-wandering music, actually, right now that we're playing, going out of break here on the on the podcast. I come up with some of my greatest ideas, though, and inventions during during the time my mind is wandering, Joseph. Like the time I came up with the idea to combine a kitchen garbage disposal and a toilet. You'll never need a plunger again. You're welcome. In the kitchen. No, no, no. In no, you you not in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> that is, and, and putting a temperature sensor on a ceiling fan so the temperature as it gets hotter in the room, the fan would go faster and as the room gets cooler, the fan would automatically slow down. Brilliant, right? I think it's pretty great. That's pretty cool. See, look, if you use any of these I, I only ask for 10% if you use any of these ideas. You can still send your checks to 123 East Spear Boulevard, Denver, Colorado. 80203. I'm waiting for the first checks to, to keep to, to arrive. They, keep they, them coming, folks. All your friends are doing it. <laughs> they could be small. They could be large. They could be blank. Those are really Absolutely. the ones that are preferred. Coming up, we've always heard the best time to book a flight to get the uh, cheapest fare is on Tuesday. But is that true? We look at that and so much more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. Lisa Hidalgo, and you're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with Jason Luber. I love the morning because it's so fun, and everybody just has this best energy about them. And I mean, like working with you, Jason, you're awesome. You're so upbeat. You're happy. You're funny. You're fun. Lisa, Mitch, Dale, the whole crew. And so, you know, and, and I love the nighttime crew, too. I was on the now with Teresa Marchetta, who I love. But, you know, the nighttime, you start getting into six and 10, it's just a different. It's just a different environment. You know, it's much more serious. It's, it's kind of harder. So in the, in the morning, we get to have fun, and that's my favorite part of it. Adam Hammond, only on Denver 7. When I come to a story, people say, well, well where's the camera person? And I said, well, you're looking at her. I said, that's me too. And they, they kind of throws them off. But I love having control over the video, but sometimes I will have to move my camera. It slows down the process a little bit. What's rewarding is I feel like I really get to know my subjects and I get to spend time doing it. And at the end of the day, when I look at my, it's almost like your project for the day. You created a project and then you're going to present it the next morning. You're proud of it. And 
having a role in that whole process is rewarding. Connor Wist, only on Denver 7. Welcome back to the Driving You Crazy podcast, and let me be the first to also wish each and every single one of you a very happy and healthy National Drive Electric Week. Enjoy it, folks. It only comes once a year. There was an event in downtown yesterday where they uh, paraded out a bunch of electric vehicles showing them off. Uh, like people have never seen electric vehicles in their lives before or don't know what they're all about. My favorite one was the one that was shaped like an electric bolt. <laughs> the problem, I think, with electric cars for most people is they can't be bothered to remember to plug them in every night. I mean, with gas cars, right, they, they, they see they're out of gas, and then they stop at their nearest fueling station, and, and the five minutes later, uh, they're, they're ready to go for another week. But with electric cars, you have to be more mindful of charging it nearly every night especially for the lower range models if you have something like a, t- a super expensive Tesla that can hold 200 miles of charge well you do it less but still you're in big trouble if you head out and you don't charge it and you realize you have 10 miles of charge and you're 15 miles away from home never a good situation to be in uh, i mean you, there's also the situation where you're 12 miles from home and you only have 10 miles worth of gas so yeah same thing. Well, but no it, at least you can get to a gas station hopefully within those miles fingers crossed yeah exactly um today is a big day jason Do you oh know it is why? uh because it's wednesday yes because the camel is going to be walking through the newsroom because it's hump day I hope so. Um, it is also the day that bidding the bidding process begins for the 2026 Winter Olympics. And the Associated Press decided to do what they do best and stir up some trouble by publishing an article yesterday that indicated that both Salt Lake City and Denver are potential landing spots for the 2026 Winter Games. Now, we've talked about this briefly before. I don't think it was on the podcast, though, that Denver did turn down the Winter Olympics in 1976. They're still the only city that's ever been awarded an Olympic Games and then said, eh, no thank you, which is fascinating to me. Uh, Salt Lake City tried to take over the bid that year. That didn't go through. Salt Lake City obviously got the Winter Olympics in 2002. Um, we actually posted this question on our Denver 7 Facebook page, should the city of Denver host the Winter Olympics? And while it would seem like it's a really cool thing, and you would think that a lot of people would be excited to have this world-class competition here, reaction's actually mostly down the middle. About 54% of people said, yeah, bring them on, and, 50, and 46% of people said, eh, no. I'm, I'm in that group. Okay, so there's four general arguments that are made by people who are opposed to having the Winter Olympics in Colorado. Um, and it boils down to not enough hotels, not enough infra- infrastructure, yeah. uh, not going to turn a profit, right. and what a waste of time. Yeah. Right? Um, and the bottom line is that while that was true in the past, I'm not convinced that that's true going forward. And the events, don't forget, are spread out all over. So like in Salt Lake City, it wasn't all in just downtown Salt Lake City because or Vancouver or Sochi or any of the others. Like here, we would have the ice skating and those... Uh, hockey tournaments and stuff downtown, probably. Right. They might even put some of the skating down in the springs down at um, Broadmoor. Or either at yep. DU or the Broadmoor or at Colorado College. Then they're going to have ski jumping in um, a Steamboat. Yep. Then they'd have downhill at Vail. They'd have the half pipe stuff for the uh, snowboard in Aspen. So they'd have these events so far spread out, you, you can only see those one events. 
But so you actually you made part of my argument for me, which is that in places like Sochi and places like Pyeongchang, which is hosting the, the next Winter Olympics next year, there had to be a lot of structures built and a lot of stadiums built because they just didn't have the infrastructure to really host those kind of events. If you host the Winter Olympics in Colorado, you don't have that problem. You have your world-class facilities for snowboard, for skiing, for downhill, for uh, the biathlon, if you want to talk about really obscure sports. There's enough arenas in the, co- the metro area and in the springs where you could conceivably host figure skating, ice hockey, speed skating, curling, all of those events. You could even, I mean, and so I, I wrote an article this, that should be going up later today that outlines some of this, but between the Coliseum, the Pepsi Center... Broadmoor World Arena, DU's Magnus Arena, Loveland's Budweiser mm-hmm. Events Center. That's probably enough the right first there. The First Bank Center. And, the first, and that's, that's my next point is that if you wanted to get creative, you could retrofit the First Bank Center or the Coors Event Center to host some of these ice events that would normally not be hosted in a facility like that. So that's taken care of. You don't have to put out a lot of money for new facilities with the exception of a bobsled track. Somebody would have to build a bobsled track. Right. Sorry. <laughs> so sad, too bad. Um, the second argument is that there's not enough housing here. That's the, the argument that's been used to not host the Super Bowl here. There's just not enough available hotel rooms. I did the numbers last night. Between the resort towns, the Denver metro area, and Colorado Springs area, there's about 55,000 available hotel rooms. Okay? Pyeongchang was approved for their Winter Olympic bid with about 76,000 hotel rooms. So that means that between now and 2026, the number of hotels in Denver would have to go up by about 40%. The thing is, that might happen anyway. Look at the amount of building that's been happening in this city and the surrounding areas. There's projected hotel growth of about 5 to 7% over each of the next four years. You do that math, and all of a sudden, that figure of 76,000 available hotel rooms becomes something that you don't have to build a whole lot of new housing for. And you wouldn't have to build an athlete's village either, because you could very easily either solicit DU, CU Boulder, any of the local universities, to host the athletes there and just give the kids two weeks off. Why not? Yeah, it's but the all the kids, their stuff is in there. In the, it's not like the summer where they've moved out, like in the summer games. That's easy because they're out because the dorms are empty. That's why they. That's why the Broncos used to go up to Greeley up at University of Northern Colorado and stay in those dorms because they were empty. And that's fair. But if you host in January, while they're already on break, you do it those first two weeks of January, just have the kids move all their stuff out. Just have the kids move all their stuff out. Yeah, right. It's not that oh, big okay. of a deal. You know sure. what I mean? It's not that hard to find. I mean, you're Take talking down about their Justin Bieber posters. <laughs> Some of those Olympic athletes are probably at the age where they would appreciate the Bieber posters, especially those figure skaters. Maybe. Right? So there's so there that takes care of that piece, the housing and lodging. The third one is the infrastructure. And really that's the biggest question to me is how do you get all of those people from the hotels in downtown Denver to Vail for the events or to ask? Well, they would the have events. to stay in those places because if they're training and waking that you can't have them stuck on I-70. God forbid there's a snowstorm, crash, whatever, and then they're stuck on I-70 and they, they didn't make their event. So that would be my main point, though, is that I don't think there's any way to do it without widening I-70. I just don't. I'm, right. I think that you would have to look at a project where you turn I-70 into probably 8 to 10 lanes. There's no way. There's no room. And you would need, well, no, you could get room. However, you would need $50 billion to move mountains, basically. Well, 
so you could always squeeze, right? So you could make the majority of it 8 to 10 lanes and then make it smaller in the mountains and just have it tighten up there, correct? Like have it from the airport to, you tell me the exit number, I'm not that familiar with that area. Well, e- even right up to Golden Morrison, you could you could have more lanes there. However, even when you go up into the Morrison, you're looking at steep drop-off, so you're going to have to carve another. There's already three lanes from that point going down to the bottom of Floyd Hill before you get to Idaho Springs. That's where it goes to two lanes. And you have a problem with a mountain that's starting to slide a little bit. Plus, you would have to carve into the mountain. And then you look on one side of the hill, which goes down 400 feet. And the other goes up 400 feet. So that's that's your problem because you're in the mountains. And unfortunately, rocks move and rocks fall. And, and you don't really have the luxury of, of cutting through mountains cheaply. Unfortunately. <laughs> but the, my point being that when Salt Lake City placed their bid for the games in 20, 2002, 2002, um, they knew that they had to expand I-15, I-16 going from the airport to their ski resorts. And if anything, the prospect of holding the Winter Olympics forced them to get to work, and they got the project done in four years. A lot of people say, hey, we don't need to build out these roads. It's not worth it to build out these roads. Let's kick the can down the road a few years. If you knew that you were having 70,000 people come to this city that needed to use those roads... Maybe our state government would do something about funding new infrastructure budgets. Maybe, but the city already is is dead set on doing more of the bike lanes and, and squeezing the cars off the roads and doing more transit. We have new bike lanes now going into another street right by Union Station downtown. And we're not talking about getting rid of those projects. We're just talking about, in addition to that, putting the funding together to really widen I-70, which is something that, again needs to be done anyway. Yes, it does. Like, it would be very beneficial to the city as a whole to have that project done. And talk about a legacy. After the games are over, you still have this gorgeous highway that can funnel tourists from the airport to the mountains. You know, the dollars are going to keep flowing in even after the games are over. And really, the dollars are my last major point. Because it used to be that these cities would line up, they'd pay a bunch of money, they'd host the Olympic Games, they'd think they were getting this big tourist impact, and then it would fall apart. Look at Sochi, Nagano, Turin. Do you know where any of those cities are? Rio. Exactly. I mean, you're talking about the, the, last four, the last three hosts of the Winter Olympics saw no discernible tourist impact after they hosted the Games. Yep. That's not the case in Denver. And that's not the case for the Games as they stand right now. When Los Angeles earned their bid, they negotiated a, a record-setting contract with the International Olympic Committee. They're going to get, at a baseline, probably about $4.5 billion just for hosting the Games on a budget of $5.3 billion. And that's not including all of the local sponsorships they'll be, they'll be able to sell. And it's not including the hotel and sales tax revenue that they're going to bring in as a result of hosting the Games for those two weeks. Well, let's say $5 billion. Let's say the city or the state was given $5 billion. That's not enough, that's, or that's barely enough, just that money. And I, I really don't think that's probably enough to, to build what needs to be built on I-70 just from Golden all the way into the mountains. Not even that much money. But the thing is, you're talking about doing that anyway. I mean, the infrastructure budget that we talked about when we first launched this project was a $9 billion infrastructure budget, right? And so you're talking about a way to find funding for more than half of that just by hosting the Olympics. And the best part of it is that you don't have to spend any money on new venues or anything like that. That's really your only expenditure for hosting the Olympics, minus the bobsled track, which I do believe you'd be able to get private financing for. Right? So to me... From the bobsled channel? One of the resorts, some of the theory that I dive into my, in my article is that you would be able to convince one of the resorts to build a bobsled venue, and then once the games are over, they tear down the bobsled part and just turn it into a 7,000-seat event center, which is not wholly unreasonable, I don't think. That's, that's one of those where— Or they might like what Steamboat did when they built the 
uh, ski jumping deal. They keep it there, and they do training there all the time. Well, and that's the flip side. I mean, you you could very easily, Colorado already, the Springs is already the home of the Summer Olympic training program. Well, and Vail is the home of the ski team where they're doing their ski team training up there. If, if Denver or the Colorado area had a world-class bobsled facility, I would bet you a very high sum of money that we would become the destination for all bobsled events. Probably. So, and don't forget the luge. Luge and skeleton love are both the, the same place. I love skeleton, man. Like <laughs> hurdle down a track with nothing Covered but with your ice. body. Yeah, like you're, you'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be. Yeah, you're, you're, you're it's fine. fine. Have fun with that. So, I mean, all things considered, though, I think a lot of the obstacles that people look at as impediments to hosting the Olympics in Colorado really were obstacles over the past three decades, but won't be obstacles going forward because the Olympics are desperate at this point. You make good points. However, the people here in, in Colorado, I think some people would go out and see some of the events. It's not like everybody here is going to be so jazzed that they're going to be able to see these athletes that, one, they probably have no very little name recognition right. of any of these people. It's neat to see the events when you can, but it's not like we've had uh, uh, other world-class events here, and, and some people go. We've had the bike thing downtown. That's, That's not neat. the Olympics. Had, Come on. All right. That's I mean, not the Olympics. I just don't see Colorado people going to all these different things, and they're going to say it's an inconvenience, and there's going to be too many people here, and then my traffic's going to suck for two weeks. Well, we, might, we might as well just close all businesses for two weeks. Look, I'm from New England, right? And Boston famously was the United States nominee for the 2024 games, and they turned it down. They said, we don't want this here. The infrastructure is not built out enough here. We're, thank you, but no thank you, right? That's how most cities are treating the Olympics these days. People don't want it. Right. There's only there were by my count, there were a dozen bids for this particular Olympic Games in 2026 that were canceled because the city said, no, we're good. Right now, there are only four legitimate bids on the table and two of them are under public referendum right now, one in Austria and one in Norway. And both could be taken off the table in the next 60 days. That leaves you with only two real bids, one in Scion, Switzerland, the other in Calgary, Canada, both of which would need massive infrastructure improvements in order to host an event of this caliber. Colorado doesn't need that. The Olympics need a city like Denver and need a state like Colorado more than we need the Olympics. And that's why I believe that if we put in a bid to host the Winter Olympics, we could turn this into a situation that actually becomes profitable for Colorado rather than the quote-unquote waste of money that a lot of people believe it is. Now, what about the security concerns as the cost? I mean, because really... There hasn't been a whole lot. Yeah, there was that Olympic crazy guy who who did the bombing in, in Olympic Park. But there still is a huge security concern because they they go overboard with the whole security thing. Right. Well, and I think And that costs a lot of money. Well, it's jobs realistically. And a lot of that would be private stuff and you would have companies swarming in here dying to get that security contract. And so I I I do think that while it would be cost that's cost that's baked into the cost of hosting the games. I mean, that, that's going to be something that you pay for no matter what city you're in. And again, if the International Olympic Committee is desperate enough to host in a city like this, they'll be willing to front you at least some of that money. And the federal government will, will as well. And that's something we haven't talked about either. Talk about a guy who could use a win like bringing the Winter Olympics to Colorado. Donald Trump would love, would love to have two Olympics brought to America in his first two years as president. Probably, yeah. Uh, you know what I've always thought, though? We should pick kind of like the Super Bowl had for many years before sending it to, you know, Detroit and now Minneapolis, right? They have it this year. They used to just do it in the war Miami, 
New Orleans, San Diego, Dallas. I mean, they would just keep it in Houston. You know, they would just keep it in the warm Phoenix. They'd keep it in the warm weather climates. People like to party, those kind of places. Right. Maybe we should have four venues for the winter and summer Olympics. So it's not a bad and, idea. And they just rotate because then you always have the infrastructure in place. You up, have the upkeep. Those will become training facilities on the off years. You don't have to worry. You have them in different parts of the world, so those people can go see it. Uh, you don't have to worry about the time zone changes every four years. I mean, it's really every 16 years, then you're always going to host it in one part of the world. Well, you look at a city like Los Angeles, and that's almost what we're getting to with them. This will be their third Olympics when they do host in 2028. It'll be their second Olympics in less than 50 years. That that almost yep. never has happened in history. And Los Angeles is really one of the few cities that is built for a place like the Olympics. And you look at what the Olympics brought to the table in Southern California. A lot of the facilities that were paid for by the 1984 Olympic money housed at athletes that are currently competing in in an Olympic level today. Venus and Serena Williams famously played on tennis courts in their youth that were paid for by L.A. 1984 money. Yep. Well, you make some good points. Thanks. Very good points. It's a good conversation to have. Um, I think there's a lot of PR that would have to happen before it would come here. I mean, 54 to 46 is not an overwhelming majority by any means. And the last time that the Olympics were proposed in Colorado, they they were sent out of Colorado by a ballot measure. So it very easily could be something that goes to the voters. But I think there's a way to sell it where it could be done and could be very popular here. And if you t- talk to people, Mitt Romney, the other organizers of the Salt Lake City Games, they all say it's, it's literally a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But why not go back to Salt Lake? Since they already have Salt a lot Lake of the infrastructure. They already have, like you said, a lot of the infrastructure is already there. Don't be surprised if Salt Lake puts a bid in. What I will say is that I don't think the Olympics has much of an appetite to host in the same American city twice in a span of 30 years. And I also don't think that if Salt Lake City and Denver were equally serious about their bid, that Salt Lake City would be a stronger candidate than Denver. No, I, you know, as I think about it with your points made, you do make good points that it could be done well here. I still don't think the appetite is here from the people to want it. You would need somebody as charismatic as Romney was in 02. Uh, somebody would have to really adopt this as a pet project in order to make it happen. And whether that was Hickenlooper, whether that was Mayor Michael Hancock, whether it's somebody that we haven't even thought of yet, somebody would have to step up to the table and say, I'm going to be the person that brings this here. Well, here's what's going to happen. Somebody out there in city government is going to read your blog post that is out there. Where can people find this thing? Uh, it's up on the Denver channel right now. It's called The Case for the Denver Olympics. You can also find the link on the Denver 7 Facebook page. See, there you go. And that's where you can make your comments to the Denver 7 Facebook page. And maybe maybe we can do this. Print out your blog post. Personally, deliver it to Mayor Hancock and to Governor Hickenlooper and, and, and see what they say. I actually think it would be more likely to come from a senator now that we're having the debate about who would be the one to spearhead this. I, this seems like something that Cory Gardner would attach his name to. You think so? It's, it's, once it's what popular, about one of the it's state popular. legislators who uh, work, who uh, like represents Steamboat or represents Vail or one of the other mountain communities. When you think about the amount of money that Steamboat would get, A, from the federal government for construction of new resorts, and B, from the people coming in to watch the games, I mean, you would think that they would be chomping at steamboat i think would be jazz i think Vale would probably be jazzed yeah. the springs would probably be jazzed because you know they host the uh olympic figure skaters down there exactly so there are already facilities down that way uh northern colorado already would probably you would have to spread them out so much though and and well, i guess it's interesting but that's fine and one other thing i bring up in this article when you get a chance to read it 
there's also the chance that they could host the hockey final at Mile High Stadium. And wouldn't that just be the coolest but thing But no, ever? it has to be set up for the opening and closing ceremonies. Well, there's right? also Folsom. I mean, you have th- you now have three world-class football stadiums. Well, you could do it at Coors Field. Coors Field. Because they've already had a hockey game at Coors Field. Exactly. I mean, I think Folsom Field would be the most fascinating, though. You yeah. have that beautiful view of the flat irons, and you'd also have a hockey game going on that has literally global implications. I'm sold. Do you think those guys would want to play outside? You know, Maybe. it's time for the Olympics to start thinking outside the box. And if they're not going to have NHL players, they're going to need another draw to do it. I don't see why not. All right, Joseph. From Olympics to, well, in an effort to provide the most luxurious airline experience to their most preferred clientele, American Airlines announced that they had installed now two-way mirrors in their Admiral Club lounges so that members could enjoy the misery of the passengers in the gate waiting area. Get out of here. (laughs) These wall-length two-way mirrors allow our premium customers to relish the discomfort of the masses as they wait at cramped, overcrowded gates for their flights, said spokeswoman Alexa Sheehan, explaining that gawking at ordinary passengers sitting on the dirty airport carpet while resting their backs on their carry-ons would make the Admiral Club reclining leather chairs that much more satisfying. Is she serious? (laughs) Quote, as always, our members can indulge in our complimentary cocktails and gourmet food options, but now with the added perk of watching stressed-out travelers who have only eaten french fries all day struggle to get comfortable in their neck pillows. And if they want a break from getting important work done in our Wi-Fi-enabled business center, they can just savor the herds of commoners wandering around in search of one of three available outlets to plug in their charger. Unquote. At press time, American was considering installing completely transparent glass after some Admiral Club members complained that people suffering at the gate couldn't see firsthand all the perks they were missing out on. (laughs) Of course, this is a brilliant, another brilliant story, fake story, written in the Onion satirical newspaper. I'm so annoyed that this is a fake story. First of all, (laughs) thought it was real. Second of all... Didn't see any reason not to think it was real. <laughs> Third of all, makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. I'm surprised that there aren't already two-way mirrors in those Admirals Club lounges. There are in some of them. I've been in some of those lounges, and they are, for the most part, pretty nice. Uh, not the traveling utopia that some people might think they are, but they are They are pretty nice. And there are some benefits of uh, being in there over being in the general public areas of the airport. Is there free booze? Yes, well, I mean, what more can you ask for? I'm paying $11 for a beer at some crap hotel bar. You're in the Admiral's Club Lounge sipping free martinis. I know where I would rather be. And getting the food and just having a nice place to hang out. And sometimes they have game rooms. Sometimes they have actually little napping areas. And making fun of me as I drank my $11 Bud Light. Now, the problem with some of them is they're spread out around the airports and sometimes not at the gate that you want to be. Like, So there was this one time. We came back from a cruise, and we were flying out of the Miami airport, and it was a 20-minute walk from the great we were, because the Miami airport's kind of screwy. So we had to walk all the way through the terminal area and then get through this one security. So we had to go through security, take this little tram over. It was like 20-minute process just to get over to this club thing, and it was another 20 minutes back coming back out through security, going back again in through security with my wife and my two kids. But it was it was pretty nice. To have a place to crash for a couple of hours, uh, just getting off that off that boat. Must be nice. Must 
be nice. It's nice to go to the airport early if you have to and sit in one of those lounges. This coming from the same guy who takes a five-hour break between flights so that he can go see the town for a couple of hours. Yes. Which I still have trouble <laughs> wrapping my head around. <laughs> I like to live dangerously. Oh, man. That's why Dangerously is my middle name. Oh, well done. Have you ever seen the movie Johnny Dangerously? Of course you haven't. No. <laughs> you knew the answer to that before you asked it. Oh, man, you got to see. That is one of the classic Michael Keaton movies ever. It is so funny. Anyway, all right. So have you heard uh, that if you book a flight on Tuesdays, speaking of airline travel, that you're going to save the most amount of money? I've actually never heard this one. No? No. Is this another Onion article? No, it's not. But it's an old wives' tale that that you book on Tuesdays because it'll save you the most amount of money. Now, that might have been the case a long time ago, but it isn't that way anymore. So Katie Hill from MoneyIsh.com said she came up with the only guide you will ever need for scoring dirt cheap airfare. She says to buy on Tuesdays, well, that's just a myth. You don't need to do that anymore. This rule gets repeated so many times that many people are certain that it's true, but it's not. The site CheapAir.com found out that you're just as likely to find deals on a Tuesday as you are on any other day of the week. And the average low fare you pay on any day of the week are all within about two bucks. A similar analysis by Hopper.com. I've never used their services. Have you used Hopper? Never even heard of it until now. They found that on Tuesday, it was only the cheapest day to buy tickets for 1.6% of domestic routes. Even though the buy on Tuesday rule isn't true, the travel on Tuesday rule is spot on. So if you want to save big bucks on your plane tickets, then you pick flights that actually take off on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and you can save on average $73 a ticket. And I have seen that. I I know we try to schedule sometimes our flights because they can be so expensive on a Monday because they are so much less expensive. That's true. Meanwhile, Sunday is the most expensive for obvious reasons. You should think of it like this. If it's a day when business travelers are likely to fly, it's probably going to be more expensive. So Katie Hill at Moneyish also looked at the research from Cheap Air, which analyzed 921 million flights to figure out when to buy tickets and talked to the airfare experts to figure out when you should buy tickets and save money. So this is how far ahead you should buy your plane ticket. In general, you'll want to book airfare at least three weeks and up to three and a half months ahead of time. That is the sweet spot, apparently. Keep in mind that fares will still fluctuate a little bit in that rather large window. But in general, that's the sweet spot right there. Three weeks to three and a half months where the best fares tend to pop up and fares tend to be within 5% of their lowest price. Of course, this broad rule depends on your location. Here is a more specific guide uh, for that uh, to buy your ticket. Flying in the continental U.S. or Canada, 54 days ahead. Hawaii, 79 days ahead. The Caribbean, not that you would really want to go there now, 76 days ahead. Mexico and Central America, maybe you wouldn't want to go there now, 61 days ahead. Europe, 99 days ahead. South America, 81 days ahead. Asia, 90 days ahead. And Africa and the Middle East, about 119 days ahead. South Pacific, like we can ever afford to go to the South Pacific in Tahiti or whatever. Wouldn't that be Australia, too? Does Australia fall into the South yeah, Pacific? Zone? Maybe. Yeah, somewhere around there. I I, I, that's, my, that's my dream vacation there, right there. I would love to take a cruise there. Uh, they say South Pacific, 89 days ahead. Now, those numbers are averages, helpful averages, but still averages, but still also within that three-week to three-and-a-half-month window there. Now, think of them as rough guidelines for the best time to buy, and then combine them with the tools like Hopper.com's When to Fly and Buy feature, as well as fare alerts from services like Google Flights or Kayak, and then you can get your lowest possible fare. 
And, and why does all this matter, really? Well, the price of flights is going to change 71 times between the flight is announced and when it takes off, and each change averages about $33 up or down, which means that the fare alerts set within a smart window of time are one of the best ways to make sure that you are getting the low rate. And when you're traveling like I am with a family of four, when you combine those $33 with four people, you're saving 120 bucks, and that is a dinner and a, and a lunch for the family. Absolutely. Right? So the day of or the day before a flight is obviously the absolute worst day to book a flight. Unsurprisingly, it's the time that you're going to get the worst deals. You'll pay $249 more on average if you book the day of or the day before. And people who try to book less than two weeks ahead on on uh, their flights tend to score the less coveted last-minute deals. They really don't work that much better either. On average, they'll pay $150 more than those who book in that three-week to three-and-a-half-month-ahead window. It's also important, they say, to think about what time of year you're flying. So summer tends to be the priciest and January and February the cheapest because the kids are in school and, and a lot of people aren't traveling at that point. And it, of course, depends on what your destination is as well. Ski destinations, for example, are going to be pricier in the beginning part of the year because people are going to want to go where it's cold and where the snow is, uh, unless you live here in Colorado where you can just drive up there. Uh, but if you're in the summer and people you want to go to a summer destination, well, it's going to be obviously a little bit more example. This is just another perfect example of the Driving You Crazy podcast helping you out on, that, a, on, on a podcast-by-podcast podcast basis. You know, and there's one other point that I want to make, and that's be prepared to buy quickly. And by the first time that you look at flights, don't overshop for these things because a lot of the air, airline websites now, and especially the airline fare aggregators, will track your search history. And if you search like I've done in the past, if you search for a flight from, from Las Vegas to Denver 17 times in a span of two weeks, by the time you get to that 17th search, your fare will have gone up right. because they know you want it. They are tracking that information, and they will slowly gouge that price on you because they know that it's something that you're going to book anyway. Something I do in to counteract that is I always search my airfares on Google Chrome, but I use the incognito tab. And so that way, it doesn't know who I am. One of the best tricks you can possibly do when searching for airfares. It always, always, always pays off in the long run to do it that and way. And, you know, I've also heard that if you want to book certain hotel chains, they actually give you better deals if you book on your phone rather than even a laptop or a desktop. You actually get better deals depending on what device you use because they think you are a certain type of traveler. You have a certain income level, either your business or leisure, and they can determine some of that based on your computer use to book your whatever you're going to be booking. It's very That's very interesting. I never thought of it that way. Now, have you ever used the Priceline tool where you book a hotel at a deep discount, but you don't get to see what the hotel is? Or you book a flight at a deep discount, but you don't get to see what the flight is? Uh, no, but I have done it with car rentals. Because car rentals, for me, I don't... That doesn't I, matter. Because <laughs> I don't care what the car rental company is. It could be Hertz or Avis or Thrifty, whatever. But but I get that car, so I've done it I've done it with cars. I mean, it could be Jim down the street, as long as I'm getting a Nissan Sentra. It's right. fine, right? Exactly. So but, I've done that. But so I, I booked... I used to book hotels on this all the time. And you wind up in, you know, not the hotel you necessarily dreamed about but you still get a very good price on a hotel. It's more interesting with flights because with flights, it really messes up your schedule. Sure. If you, if you say, hey, I'm going to book this because I'm going to get a 40% window, but you're going to tell me when to fly and you're going to tell me where my layover is going to be too. I did this for a flight to Nashville and the, on the way there, I got lucky because I wound up getting a nonstop from Denver to Nashville. On the way back, I had to stop in Phoenix. Why did I have to fly all the way to Phoenix to get to Denver? 
Why did you have to fly all the way to Phoenix to get to Denver, Joseph? I don't know, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was leading somewhere. It's not going anywhere. I just really don't like Phoenix. That's all. <laughs> Speaking of Phoenix, I took one of these uh, when Western Pacific Airlines used to be around. They used to have these mystery fares. They were great. Fifty bucks. It was forty nine dollars for for round trip. Forty nine dollar round trip. We pick one of five destinations. You nope. only you know where you're going twenty four hours ahead of time. Nope, I'm good. Oh yeah, I'm good. oh I did that. And guess where they sent me? Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah, Was I could have gone to Phoenix, Vegas, Los Angeles, San Diego, or San Francisco. You lost. I went to Phoenix, <laughs> and you know what I immediately did? I rented a car and I drove up to the Grand Canyon. Drove to the Grand Canyon, drove to Kingman, Arizona. Well, I, I passed through Kingman. Kingman is just like one of the most desolate, worst. It's like Amarillo. You, you only drive there to, I don't know. It's a meth factory, It's too. not very fun. Sorry, and it, Kingman. <laughs> and, then, and then I drove right. I, I, I probably put 1,500 miles on that car in, in two and a half days. And to think you could have been enjoying a wonderful night at the casinos of Las Vegas or a wonderful oh, yeah. excursion on the town in San Diego or San Francisco. Instead, Hey, I got to see this Grand Canyon. Yeah, Phoenix. I got to see part of the Navajo Nation listening to 660 KTNN. Interesting. The Navajo Nation. So I think I'm just really bitter about Phoenix because the Rockies and the Diamondbacks are fighting it out for the wild card. But right. really, there's just, like, I'm sorry, Arizona. There's nothing redeeming about you. <laughs> Flagstaff. <laughs> no. 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 Nothing. Four corners. That. That's only twenty five percent in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> they got it's uh, something. I it's I don't know. Nope. Nope. All right. Well, I guess that'll that, I guess it'll wrap it up. I guess we're not going to have any fans there in Arizona. Goodbye to our Arizona. Well, please send all your questions, comments, and concerns to Joseph Peters uh, here at the uh, one twenty three East Beer Boulevard, Denver, Colorado. You can also at me on Twitter at Joseph Denver Seven. But that might be a little fast. As the kids say, don't at me, Arizona. Don't at me. Yeah. I'm so far from any of this. So far. So far away from you. Thanks again for being here. Thanks again for listening and supporting the podcast. Until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I'm Olympic advocate Joseph Peters. Happy safe as always. Happy motoring.